I was so taken up with what Chad was saying, I forgot to turn my mic on, but there we are, we've got it now. So I've got a few, um, a few little things to sort out here, like the iPad and various other things. How are you all doing today? You doing good? Yeah? Glad to see the rain or not glad? Glad to see the rain, okay. So you, you feel like your garden's going to need it and all that kind of thing? The farmers are going to need it, okay. And my pen now works, which is glorious. Thank you, Lord. So, we are going to really be moving into the latter stages of our study in Luke and Acts, and of course that means that we're really heading up close to the very final chapter. The final chapter of the Acts of the Apostles really details Paul's arrival in Italy and then gives us some insight into his preparations for his trial before Caesar. But one of the interesting things about the Acts of the Apostles is that it kind of leaves things hanging at the end of the story. It's, it's like there's no resolution at the end. And I think that one of the reasons for that, that the Holy Spirit designed the Acts of the Apostles, which of course is really our handbook for mission, has left it like that because he's asking us this question, what are you going to do? It's not what Paul did which is the operative question. It's what are you going to do to continue the mission of the Holy Spirit as he seeks to empower and energize you to take the good news of Jesus to the world? And, and not only what, what are you going to do, but how are you going to do it? So some of those things will be, of course, in our minds as we look back over the texts that we've been looking at in the coming weeks because we'll do a couple of summary Sundays where we look back and uh, just enjoy somewhat the landscape that, that we've been walking through together. But that's for future weeks. This week, we're going to be looking at Paul and the shipwreck. So we're going to look at uh, Acts 27 and verse 27. If you join me in reading that, it's a couple of pages, but it's kind of fun pages. So worth joining in. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let down the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. When Paul said, then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves altogether. There were 276 of us on board. 
When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners and prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. What a fun story. Isn't that great? It's kind of got a, it's got a whole kind of adventure feeling to it, hasn't it? And um, you, get a, you get a real sense of the kind of gravitas of the situation as, as Luke gives us this, this beautifully constructed narrative. On previous occasions, I've, I've asked you whether you have considered what it is that Paul is thinking about when he's going through these various different adventures and experiences. And um, on some occasions, we've been able to go to some of the letters that he was writing during this period, and we can see some of the thoughts and emphases that were perhaps in his mind that caused him to reflect deeply on the things that he was going through. Uh, Last time, we looked at Philippians, and at other times, we've looked at other of the letters that were either written during the events that are described here by Luke, or are written very soon afterwards, and we feel as though these events would have had some influence on the way that he wrote those letters. Now, there's a big debate amongst theologians, and has been running for the best part of 1,700 years, as to who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. The early church were unequivocal in their belief that Paul wrote Hebrews, But because there's no name attached to the letter, it has always been somewhat open to discussion and debate. I think even in the fourth century, Tertullian suggested that Barnabas wrote the letter. Others have suggested, Luther, I think, suggested that it was Apollos. And contemporary theologians are largely divided on it, but most people really don't think that um, that it's fashionable to see Paul as the author. Personally, I think he did. But who knows? Eventually we'll get to heaven and discover that I'm right. But but we can't prove it. We can't be certain of this. And um, of course it has a very different feel. It has a, a, a rather different style linguistically as would be natural to a person who is familiar with cross-cultural communication and evangelism. Paul knows how to communicate to the Jews and to the Gentiles. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Greeks, I became a Greek, says Paul. And perhaps that's reflected in his style of writing, if in fact he did write the letter to the Hebrews. 
But just go with me for a little while. Just assume that maybe I might be right. What kind of things would be going through a man's mind during the period that he's experiencing all of these adventures? When you look back on what it is that Paul has been going through, it's, um, it's really quite interesting to, to see what's, what's going on in terms of the chronology of events. Perhaps back in Jerusalem, James had just recently been martyred. Certainly back in Jerusalem, the celebrations for the Day of Atonement had just recently been enjoyed by everyone, the most important and holiest day in the Jewish religious calendar had just taken place. And here, in the mind of Luke, a man who, of course, is deeply connected to Paul, he remembers that fact. In verse 9 of the chapter that we've just been reading, when they were still preparing for their journey across the Adriatic in the hope that they would make it really without um, injury or accident, in verse 9 it says, Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the fast. The fast is, of course, those days of preparation for the Day of Atonement. So certainly in the minds of all of the Jewish members of crew, the Jewish passengers, the, the people that Paul is interacting with, this is the most important time of the year. It'd be a bit like us saying, I mean, we were on the boat during Easter. Or, you know, we missed Christmas that year because we were on the boat. That, that would be the sense in which you have when you imagine what it was like to be a passenger on this, on this particular ship. So the Day of Atonement is right there in Paul's mind, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And then what else is on Paul's mind? Well, when they begin to get swept out into the open sea by the northeaster that has swept off the land, they drop an anchor called a sea anchor, which in the days of Paul and pretty much today looks like a parachute underneath the water. You let it out on a rope and the sea anchor is supposed to slow your progress down because it's creating drag underneath the water. And so they've had a sea anchor. Now, as they approach the land, which of course they'll discover to be Malta, they lower four anchors from the stern to hold them in place. And when they cut it loose, of course, they head pell-mell towards the sandbar that will eventually create the wreck itself. Anchors are very prominent in the story. Now, if, if Paul had been thinking about writing to his brother Jews at this time and was thinking about how to construct that letter, I think that those things might well be in the mind of a man who is so versed in Scripture, so familiar 
with the themes of the Old Testament narrative. And he might say something like this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, he's writing to people who are thoroughly steeped in the Old Testament, and so they know exactly what it is that he's talking about. For us, we're like going, I don't know, what is that? Is that a, is that a flavor of ice cream? I mean, what is, Mel, what is Melchizedek? I'm a little reticent, I think, about studying such things as this in a congregation like this, because one of the things that I'm most concerned about is that we don't kind of become the kind of people who are so heavenly minded that we're no earthly use, and that we find ourselves dealing in the minutiae of the biblical narrative in such a way that nobody knows what you're talking about. Oh, what did you do at church this week? Wow, we talked about Melchizedek and the heavenly tabernacle. Oh, I think I'll give you a miss. Doesn't quite sound the appealing subject of the average person and their needs, does it? And yet, here... In this text, here in this certainly influential part of the scriptures, we have, we have a revelation that if we can grasp it, will be life transforming. There is an anchor, an anchor for the soul. Now, uh, all throughout history, anchors have pretty much looked the same. Um, and the interesting thing about the anchor is it was probably the very first Christian symbol. When we look at the archaeological record, of course, we go back to the Christians in the catacombs in the, in the third and fourth centuries. And we see the ichthus, the, the shape of the fish that many people have since adopted as the, as the symbol of Christianity. But there's a great deal of evidence to suggest that the anchor was the earliest image. Because, of course, at the top of the anchor, you have this cross-shaped piece. And then the flukes, I'm using technical language now, just for those of you who are boating people. The flukes look like this. And um, the, I was going to say Paul there. You know what I think about the authorship of Hebrews. The author of the Hebrews says um, that this anchor has two elements to it, and those two elements make it firm and secure. I think that's the word. Firm and secure. Now, those, those two Greek words... That, that are translated as firm and secure 
are words that are really quite important in their nuance. What they're, what they're seeking to convey to the person reading this text for the first time is that there is an anchor that is a hope, but that this anchor is not dependent upon the hope that it finds in itself. This anchor is dependent upon its security because of the contact that it has with the immovable object to which it is attached. Anchors are great, but if they're attached to something that's moving, they're not so great. I can remember a time I'd, I'd recently um, passed my examination as a, as a person with a boating license in South Carolina. If you live in South Carolina, basically it's water everywhere. It's a swamp. And, um, and if you don't have a boating license, then you probably need to get one real soon because, you know, everybody's on the water all the time. And so that's basically what we did. And so we got a, a license, all of us, and I'd, I discovered early on my almost complete ignorance about understanding how the internet works because um, I started this test. Now, the test is a really, really long test. There's a, there's a physical test where you've got to take the boat out and park it and moor it and move it in particularly different kinds of current and all of this kind of thing. And then there's the written test. And I looked at this written test, it had like 600 questions to it. And so I start the test at about eight o'clock at night. And each of the questions, uh, you have, you have a, a little kind of test question that will help you get an idea as to whether you'll get the real question right, you know, that kind of So there's like 600, and there's another 600 to kind of get you into it. So I start at eight o'clock at night. Three o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, I'm in my study going, yes, I passed. 97%. Sally's like, what? It, it's three o'clock in the morning. And I, I you know, got up the next day and spoke to my team, who members of my family. And I said, wow, that was such a long time. I mean, it took me hours. They said, what, you, you just like did the whole thing at one time? I said, yeah. I mean, I logged in and do the whole thing, doesn't everybody? Well, no, I've been doing mine over a week. You, you know that you can actually leave it there and it's okay. <laughs> what you mean, it doesn't go away? Anyway, I passed the test. So I was grateful for that. And um, I'm out in a boat in some pretty heavy seas. And behind me, there is a shoal of, of rocks. And I'm thinking, I need to keep this boat in place because the people that I'm with are, are scuba diving and fishing. So they're underneath the water with, with the, you know, kind of harpoony things. I didn't want to do that. It sounded way too dangerous for me. And as I'm on the boat, I'm trying to watch for people coming up and you know, anybody in distress and all that kind of thing. And I'm on the boat and I look behind me and the rocks are like six feet away. 
And the reason they were six feet away was because I dropped the anchor and the anchor was just moving along the bottom of the seabed because it had not as yet found anything that was firm and secure. So here's the writer to the Hebrews speaking to us about our hope for the future. What is our hope for the future? Our hope for the future is that one day God will roll up the heavens like a blanket. He will begin again the creation that he once started. And he will, in his mercy, give us a new life, a new body, a new world, and a new way of living as we're raised to a new life that we will live forever. That hope harbored in the hearts of every believer is a hope that is enormously important to the Christian life because it gives us momentum, it gives us vision, it gives us inspiration, it gives us the capacity to put one step in front of the other when one step is difficult. So this hope that we have is enormously important, but, but is it a hope that we can wake up on a Tuesday morning and feel like, yeah, I'm good? Is it a hope that will be affected by our emotional state? Probably. Is it a hope that will be affected by the news that we see, by the people and their lives that we encounter? Is it, is it something that will be moved with the emotion of the season? Or is it a hope that is absolutely secure? It's interesting to me over the years how many devout and deeply committed Christians often find themselves struggling with this particular doubt. Am I really going to make it? And maybe, maybe the overshadowing sense of that feeling begins to creep up on you the longer that you think about it through life. And you look at it and you think, I don't know. Am I, am I really sure about this? Well, here, here the writer is saying, you can be sure of the hope. Because hope is an anchor that is attached to something that doesn't ever move. Now, to kind of get this, you need to understand what it is that the writer is speaking about. He says, he says, he has become, he's speaking of Jesus, he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So let's just go back to uh, that, uh, that reference to the Day of Atonement. What happens on the Day of Atonement is this, the, the high priest finds a lamb, a lamb without blemish. And it's important for us to remember this, that, that, the, that the price for salvation and the issue of forgiveness is not based on the examination of the people, but based on the examination of the lamb. It's not whether the people are worthy of forgiveness. 
It's not whether the people are trying their best and so they ought to be forgiven. It's not about whether these people used to do bad things and now are doing better things. The Day of Atonement, the most holy day in the religious calendar of the Jewish people, is based upon the high priest examining the lamb. Is the lamb perfect? The lamb is examined. The lamb is sacrificed. The blood of the lamb is sprinkled over the people, over all of the ornaments, over all of the vessels, over each of the instruments of religious life. And then with the blood of the lamb, the high priest enters into the holy place. The holy place being the temple or earlier, before a permanent sanctuary was built, the tabernacle, which was a tent in the desert. He enters into the holy place, which is this large space with, with an altar for, for, for prayer and intercession. And, and as, he, as he goes through this holy place, before him is behind a curtain the most holy place. And in the most holy place... There is the symbol of God's throne, the Ark of the Covenant, a large golden box in which his spoken, declared plan for human life is enshrined on the two tablets of law. This room is the same width, length, and height, and so it's a perfect cube and into that room, that space that indicates the very presence of God here on earth, the high priest on behalf of the people brings the blood of a perfect sacrifice. And on behalf of the people, the high priest intercedes and says, these people like me, have sinned. We've all strayed and gone away. And that means that we don't know how to connect with you. We, we don't know how to be with you. And because we've strayed away from you, we've strayed from the source of life in the universe. And so we know that because we've disconnected from life, we will certainly die. But we present to you this perfect sacrifice. And we ask you that you will accept this life for our life, this blood for our blood. And in that exchange, give us the freedom and release that we need to know that the life that you have for us will continue to course through our veins, to capture our minds, and to carry us forward into eternity. Now the high priest, says the writer to the Hebrews, is a man who is frail, is a man who for the years of his life will continue in the office that he's been given. And he's taken from a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi, which is the priestly tribe 
of the people of Israel. But of course, he will die. But if we were to have a hope that was really firm and secure, it would be much better to have a high priest who would not die, who could stand to make intercession for us continuously, and to offer not the blood of animals, because God has revealed to us in the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures that he doesn't desire the blood of animals. He desires a heart that's been given to him. So maybe there is a different kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice that is more perfect and more complete, that will ensure that not only the Lord is satisfied in his declaration that sin causes death, but also is able on the basis of that forgiveness to give us a life that is commensurate with the desire in his heart, which is a life that lasts forever. The writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a character of mystery in the Bible. He meets Abraham after Abraham has joined up with a variety of warlords to, to liberate and, to, and bring freedom to a particular part of the Holy Land. And at the end of that campaign, Melchizedek, who is the priest king of Salem, Salem being Jerusalem, the early community, the early gathering of that, of that great city, is overseen by a priest king. And his, his name, Melchizedek, the writer tells us, means king of righteousness. And because he's the king of Salem, he's the king of peace, Salem being peace. And so here is the king of righteousness and peace coming to Abraham, and he brings Abraham a gift. Abraham acknowledges the greatness of this king. The writer to the Hebrews says, just imagine, just think for a moment how great Melchizedek is, because Abraham, our father, most certainly the most important person in our history, gives Melchizedek a tithe of the plunder of war. Abraham gives Melchizedek the plunder of war. And the writer rightly points out that if you're offering a gift to another, the indication is that the person to whom you're giving the gift is greater than you. And in case you were in any doubt... Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and of course, the person blessing is greater than the person who is blessed. So imagine, imagine, says the writer, imagine, says Paul, you know what I think, how great is Melchizedek? Abraham, our father, gives him a tithe of his offerings. And Melchizedek blesses him and gives him bread and wine. 
And so this mysterious figure that appears just once in Scripture is described by the writer to the Hebrews as a man without ancestry, a man without beginning and end. We don't know his story. He just appears like an eternal figure. When the psalmists were writing the psalms and constructing the psalms, some of the psalms were called royal psalms, psalms that would be used in coronation ceremonies, psalms that would be used on regular events to recognize the importance of the king within the social life of Israel. One of those psalms, Psalm 110, is a psalm that is so beautifully constructed that it's used over and over again in the New Testament, perhaps the most quoted scripture from the Old Testament in the New Testament. That psalm speaks about my Lord. It speaks about my Lord being put into a position where his enemies will be his footstool. And then in that same psalm, it says this, and you, the king, are made a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so here in the minds of the Israelites is an understanding of the kingship that they recognized in David and his successors. That the king of Israel was supposed to offer justice, goodness, and peace. But they were also a priest who were to stand before God, bringing intercession. And in intercession, the very name itself suggests what the intercession is to achieve. It's to achieve righteousness. It's to achieve a right relation. It's to achieve a connection between God and people. Righteousness, you see, means a right connection. And so in the minds of the Israelites... The king was, to, was supposed to be fulfilling this role. And as the psalm is used throughout the Old Testament, so it becomes more and more associated with the messianic expectation. And perhaps above all other psalms, it's recognized as the psalm that speaks of what one day will be when Messiah comes. That God will put all of his enemies under his feet. And our king will be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He'll, he'll live forever. He'll last forever. And the offering that he brings will be an offering that is not needed to be repeated year upon year. But as the writer says, the offering will be given once for all. The offering of the blood of Jesus is given once for all. Just turn to your neighbor, say once for all. It's really important. Go ahead. Once for all. Gives me an opportunity to take a little drink because I'm getting a bit dry. So, now we've got to connect anchor to Melchizedek. We have a hope for the future. We have a, we have a longing 
for God's fulfillment of his plan for us and for all of his creation. And that longing in our heart, God has placed eternity in the heart of every person. That longing in our heart is a, is a natural human response. But how can that hope be secure? How can that hope be firm? How can the flukes of the anchor find a solid place that means that the boat of your life will not move in the storm? The writer says this. The blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, him giving up his life, his perfect life, on behalf of our imperfect life, is something that is so precious, so amazing, and so final that it never needs to be offered again. It is a perfect sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice for imperfect people who, in their imperfection, receive something that is perfect. And if we who are imperfect receive something that is perfect, we have something that is secure. Because the only things that make our life insecure are imperfections. Think about it. The thing that, that makes your life insecure is the fact that you can't trust that it's a perfect thing. Nobody's going to have a perfect day. Nobody's going to have a perfect vacation. Nobody's going to have a perfect marriage. Nobody's going to have perfect children. And what that makes you think is, well, what does the imperfection look like? I don't mind having imperfect kids. I just don't want them to be as imperfect as those people's kids. <laughs> and so we have... This reality in our life, that imperfection causes insecurity. We have eternity in our hearts because God has placed it there. And so we long for perfection. But here is a perfect life offered perfectly. And so imperfect people can find enormous security in that. This is not us offering our life for other people. This is not, this is not us with our ever-changing moods, or our ups and downs, our, our feelings, our, our bag full of emotions. This is Jesus who weeps with us, who longs for us, who walks with us who came among us, became one of us. And in a perfect life, offered his perfect death in exchange for ours. Amazing. Amazing. This imperfect life has been given a perfect gift. This imperfect life whose hope would be imperfect and constantly moving now has a hope that is connected to a perfect offering that can't be moved, otherwise it wouldn't be perfect. It's perfect. 
But then the writer goes on to say, it's more than this. Because if it were just a perfect death offered in exchange for your death, then the best that you know is that you're no longer dead. But, but the writer, again, Paul, you know what I think. The writer goes on to say, this is demonstrated. This, the veracity of this, of this priesthood, this, the significance of this, of this high priest, Jesus, that the significance is demonstrated in this one thing, an indestructible life. An indestructible life. He gives his life on our behalf, but death can't hold him. He gives his life on our behalf, but death cannot put its claws into him. The devil thought he had me, but Jesus said, you're mine. The devil thought he had Jesus, but Jesus is the author of life, and so death could not hold him. And he burst from the grave, came alive, and in the demonstration of an indestructible life, now constantly lives, constantly functions, constantly engages in this single pursuit, the blessing of your life, the blessing of your life. You say, what do you mean? Well, the whole passage that we've just looked at there together is based on this premise that the reason that you have a hope is because God promised you a hope. And the promise is based upon God promising on his own character. The oath is based on him, not on you. The promise is dependent upon him and not on you. And so that we get it, the writer expounds that idea, articulates that idea. He says, look, you have a hope for the future because God promises you a future. You have a future that is everlasting because God promises you an everlasting future. That is your hope, but it's a hope that is secure and firm because it's a hope based on an oath taken on the person of Jesus, not on the hope that you might have in the hope. There's a lot of hopes in hopes, aren't there? This is a hope in something that is firm and secure. It's a hope in Jesus. And that hope in Jesus is built upon the very central act of the life of Jesus when he offered his life in exchange for ours. We wayward, we, we wanderers have disconnected from the life source of the universe, and so we'll surely die. Jesus says, how about this? I'll die instead. 
And then when I'm raised to life because death can't hold me, I'll give you my life. How about that? So my death substitutes your death and my life captures your life and changes it forever. Both flukes of the anchor, his death, his resurrection, means that we're firm and secure. So tomorrow, when you wake up and you can't find your Bible, when you wake up and you had a bit of a bad night's sleep, kids have been waking you up, thoughts have been running through your mind, and you think, I don't know, what am I supposed to do again? Maybe I just get through and hope that Tuesday gets here. Or, maybe you do this. You say, you know, the storms of life, the troubled waters that I encounter from time to time are part of just everyday human existence. But I have an anchor, firm and secure, that goes beyond the veil to where Jesus has gone before me, where he died and where he rose again. And in his indestructible life, today is praying for me. And if Jesus is praying for me, surely today could be a lot better than if I was just praying for myself. Surely today, based upon the intercession of Jesus, I could have a good day. Surely today, with all of the pressing concerns and needs of my life, I could have a day that looks more like a picture of my destination than a vision of my past. Isn't that cool? See, that's it. Our life begins to have this sense that it's a picture of our destination, not a vision of our past. And so we start to look like different people, aliens and strangers in this world, people who smile when other people scowl, people who find peace when other people find anxiety. We find love when other people find it difficult to love, not because we're great, but because the anchor is connected to him and he is great.